global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are delighted to have Patricia Almada Beltran with us. Born in the northern Mexican state of Sonora, Patricia is a graduate of the Escuela Libre de Derecho in Mexico City. She also has an LLM from California Western School of Law. Patricia has worked as a prosecutor focusing on financial crime and is now an attorney in private practice handling criminal and other cases. Patricia, welcome to our podcast. Hello, Fred. Thank you very much for having me here. Patricia, we're very excited to learn from you today. Fred and I largely practice in the international business space. We've had some opportunities to learn about corporate commercial systems worldwide, but we don't really know anything about criminal law because that's largely done by local attorneys, even in the United States. So for listeners who are familiar with the Anglo-American legal tradition, can you give us an overview of what the Mexican criminal lawyer's work consists of? Yes. Uh, basically, criminal lawyers defend individuals or entities that have been uh, charged with a crime. Also, if you are a prosecutor or a private lawyer protecting the interest of the victim, you can collaborate with the authority in order to pursue the accusation. The majority of uh, criminal lawyers, we handle a diverse spectrum of uh, criminal cases, ranging from white-collar crimes or as fraud, uh, money laundry, drugs crimes, to violence crimes like or sex crime. Uh, nevertheless, the tendency here in Mexico at last uh, from decades ago has been the specialization on or expertise in certain group of crimes. Uh, the criminal charges against someone can be local, meaning criminal charges has been presented in any state of a country, as well can be federal crimes. I think you have it the, the same in United States. And we also take care of the procedures before appellate courts. And as you may know, here in Mexico, we also have the juicios de amparo in cases of uh, constitutional violation that take place in any point of the criminal process. So that's in general terms what we do. Patricia, the COVID-19 pandemic is bringing all sorts of changes to our societies. And in fact, um, this this podcast uh, started uh, in part as a result of of the the pandemic and the desire of, of our law firm to reach out to uh, to to our audience uh, in 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 a way that 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 allowed us to 
to do so while maintaining social distance. Um, the legal world more broadly is, is not exempt from the impact of, of the coronavirus emergency. One thing we have seen here in the United States is a shift uh, on the part of courts towards online proceedings. We, we are seeing um, the, the, the main uh, courts, such as the Supreme Court, move in that direction, but also some, uh, some local courts. Um, I know that, that Mexico is seeing some, some issues that are related to this phenomenon. Could you please tell us about this? Yes, thank you, Fred. This is a very challenging area because, um, as you know, my practice is in criminal uh, area. So uh, you you have to uh, be or make a difference between the areas that you can go online or uh, the hearings uh, before the hearings, because in the criminal process you have certain constitutional rights and certain principles that you must always guarantee and protect. So the, from the point of view of the principles, the right uh, to be in front of the judge, this is in order to assure he or she will witness everything that is going to be happening in the criminal hearings. Another principle as the publicity has, for me, from my point of view, has practical banish because not not only because you cannot uh, go online and be a public online because there is no platform right now that the courts of uh, federal ones or local ones can implement to allow the people to go in 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 these hearings so i think in especially in the criminal process this these rights must be warranted all the time with COVID-19 or without it. I I'm see um, papers, newspapers uh, around uh, all the all the country and also in South America that you can uh, analyze that some courts are establishing that in the criminal process. If you have this kind of hearings in the oral trials, these are unconstitutional because you are uh, lacking of protect uh, these rights. So I think even when we have a lot of voices that say that we cannot uh, avoid or eliminate this evolution and this will be in some point the future, we must found a way to guarantee all the rights that are writing in the constitution in order to be a uh, uh, due process. Most of our focus at Harris Bricken is on international companies that invest overseas. That includes Mexico, especially as a rising alternative to China. So we are always on the lookout for anything that could impact business conditions in important markets. We understand that Mexico has had some legal reforms that could have implications for private property rights and contractual rights more generally. There are other developments in this regard as well, such as the halting of production at foreign-owned breweries in Mexico. Can you tell us a little bit more about all of this? Yes, Jonathan, thank you. Um, this is, uh, this, this area had me very concerned uh, as a lawyer and also as a citizen of Mexico. I told you why. In May, a group of senators uh, from the majority of the political group called Morena here in Mexico 
deliver a proposition to reform the federal civil code. This proposition, disguised by the COVID-19 emergency, among other things, established serious consequences for private property because this reform exceeded the supposed goals that must achieve. These goals, they said, it was to help the tenants in disadvantage uh, because of the lack of work that produced uh, by the pandemic, suggest to adapt the amount of the rent or even eliminate the payment. We have to say that it was not clear in the reform, in the proposition, if this decrease will be directly or proportional to the decrease in the incomes of the tenants. Also, it was not clear which will be the legal process to do it. And also was not clear how much time this will last. Everyone can believe that will last the pandemia, but what if the pandemia take or last one, two, three years? These vague parameters, besides uh, of being very imprecise, affect legality in all kind of transactions. And also, I think will open a very, very problematic door for abuses and inequalities among the parties. Because the owner who also are having a big trouble with this situation, and maybe the rent that he received is the only way of living. And because of this proposition, they will be obligated to support not only calamities of the pandemic, but also the calamities of the tenant on their own shoulders. So I think uh, the, the problematic is that they are seeing this reform from only one point of view. And they are, they are not looking to uh, establish uh, a, a good situation among everyone. So I think if you, you take it from the point of view of humanity reason, obviously communication and agreements can be settled among the tenant and the owner. But if a legal reform take place, must be under a uh, perfection and clarity of the parameters that will be applied to the people. The state, I think, always must warranty the continuity of the institutions that are recognized in our constitution. So private property and contractual freedom cannot be nullified without desestabilizing our society. So I, I, I believe this is a, a very uh, problematic area, very problematic reform. I have to say you that right, right now is stopped because it caused a lot of commotion uh, in the society, especially for the owners. And uh, we, we hope this never passed through the Congress, but uh, still uh, in, the, in the Congress uh, waiting to be approved. So... I hope never, never this uh, happen. You know, Patricia, we here in the United States, we are are hearing echoes of, of this kind of, of concern um, during the recent uh, protests that have been taking place in in different uh, different cities in the U.S. Uh, and, and of course, some of the commentary that is being made about these protests online. 
some of the um, demands that that some people are making uh, involve rent reduction or or even in some cases, right? They they talk about canceling rent. And personally, I share some of the concerns that that you share. Uh, I mean, I've I've been a renter for most of my life, so. I, I understand, of course, of course, an, an obligation, and 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 sometimes it can be stressful uh, uh, to to make sure that you have enough money to pay rent. But at the, but at the same time, uh, I, I think it's important to for 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 renters uh, and and other people to put themselves in the shoes of the the landlord, the person who worked hard, perhaps uh, to to in order to obtain that property so that they could make some additional rental income. So I think as you, as you put it, you put it, you put it very, very well. Um, it's important to look at, at all the perspectives here and, and not focus on, on one particular, uh, side of it. Um, before we move on from this topic, I was wondering if perhaps you could, you could talk a little bit about what's been happening with the, with the breweries. Uh, my understanding is that, um, the, the Corona, uh, or, or the, the the company that makes Corona, they have other brands as well. Um, they've been one of the uh, affected uh, companies. Um, so perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about what's happening with with uh, with beer in regard to to this issue. Yes, this is a issue very related with the one we already talked about because it's uh, related with the uh, contractual freedom. The consolation brand case uh, can be uh, summarized in the following facts. In one side, you have uh, local farmers in Mexicali, Baja California, that argue that this company is going to end all the disposable water in the zone. They, they were very concerned because they uh, use the land to produce and if they don't have water, you eliminate the possibilities of their own way of living. In the other hand, you have an international and very important company that say that he has all the permits of the government and he will not end the water of the sun. And he will be provide uh, Mexico with work and with wealth. So what people say and why are they keep on resisting this construction of the company? They say this company only want cheap work and also cheap water. They don't care about the Mexican people, the Mexican community. These two arguments are important, but you have to establish the position of the people that are, that are fronting these ideas before the legality. So if they have a problem, you must resolve the problem with the law in the hand. I, I don't know by sure if Constellation Brand had or not had at the moment that he began the construction, the permits that they say they have. But the situation here is is very very uh, very dramatic because this is what was not resolved upon the law. This was resolved upon a public consultation, 
the president of our country say, oh, I am worried. I'm going to ask a few people. How many people? We don't know by sure. Someone says that 5% of the population of Baja California, not even all the country. So the concern here, the international concern for all the investors are if you are going to take off a, a contract of me without law, just because you decided, that is uh, a very, very problematic situation. And in further accusation, I'm not going to invest in Mexico. That is the issue. That is the problem. So we have, as, as a country, uh, as a businessman, we have to assure everyone who wants to invest in Mexico that your contracts must be secure or if you are going to have a problem, you must resolve them before a judge, not before uh, people that can have a different opinion than you. So this is mainly the problematic with this brewery, and I think it's not easy. We have a very, very bad reviews uh, from the international point of view, and obviously it's problematic because it's not uh, only one case. We also see it in the, in the airport of Texcoco, and also we see it in another uh, popular consultations that uh, our president like to do in order to satisfy the, their desires and, and also to to not apply the the law. So it's it's very it's a very concerned uh, issue. Patricia, turning now to to a more personal topic, I know that you earned uh, an LLM at California Western School of Law in San Diego. As a matter of fact, when uh, when we met um, for the first time in San Diego, uh, I had just given a lecture at the at the school, although this was after after your time there as a student. But in any case, this uh, degree, I'm sure, gives you uh, a unique perspective on, on the U.S. legal system. Uh, how has this educational experience, as, as well as the time that you have spent here in the United States, influenced uh, your your legal practice? Oh, I, I love uh, uh, this this approach because let me put you in in, in a little bit of uh, antecedent before uh, I give you the answer. Here in Mexico, in two thousand and eight took place a very important reform that eliminate our prior criminal system uh, that was a mainly a writing and inquisitorial system. In order to give way to an adversarial system similar uh, to one, the one that you have uh, in your country. So from here, the system change, the rules change and the principles of the process also change. So from all the criminal lawyers, we uh, start to see in everyone with the necessity to study again. Uh, for me, the opportunity to uh, study in the United States, one of the countries that have more exper experience in this um, uh, kind of system, it was very, very enrightful because I learned uh, another point of view, I uh, have the opportunity to analyze the origins of that point of view and also to uh, have a better understanding uh, 
of the changes that will take place in my country. So these provide me, I think, with a lot of arguments, arguments that in fact I've been using a lot of my, in my hearings. I definitely uh, develop my legal research skills and also uh, I t- take knowledge uh, and to be more aware of this uh, development and recent ideas that are taking uh, place in, in all the uh, criminal structure in our process. So I, I love to study in San Diego. I think the teachers were very uh, patient with us uh, because we were from uh, all Latin America and, and they were trying to uh, show us uh, with clarity what you have since more than 200 years ago. So it, it gave me a, a very, very uh, big scope of how to approach in, in our new criminal process. I enjoy it so much. We'd like to ask you about your experience as a woman in the legal profession and especially the Mexican legal profession. What changes have you seen during your career and what trends, positive and negative, have you seen? Well, my experience as a woman in the criminal practice has been always enriching, but it was not easy and still not easy because we still have uh, gender tendencies that we have to fight. And even when we now see a lot of women in the criminal practice, uh, especially as prosecutor and prosecutor offices or a judge or even in administrative areas, I believe we still lack enough uh, the participation of women in, in the defense in, in the hearings. Every time, I must tell you, every time that I am on a hearing, I found myself surrounded by, by men. Always there's a team of men and I mostly of the time the the only woman in in the in the hearing so it's been quite a challenge but every day that uh, told me and and I learned something regarding the changes that I uh, see I noticed that in the schools every year um, I see more and more women but as I already say, the majority choose uh, other fields than the criminal practice. Uh, in this matter, I think, and I hope that a new criminal system uh, will slowly give uh, more confidence to this younger woman to practice in, in, in the criminal uh, area. And another change that I also see and is directly related with the substitution of the prior system, because uh, as you know, we were very criticized about the corruption and the darkness of the prior system. I think this new approach, this new system, give us every day more and more uh, a new understanding uh, and adopting more good practices. And with the coming of the years, I hope that this will become something that we are and not something that we, we do. So this is mainly the, the changes that I, I, I witness. If you could give some advice to younger lawyers, especially younger female lawyers or younger women who are thinking about getting into the field of law, either in the U.S. or Mexico, what kind of advice would you give them if you were talking to them today? The first advice is to uh, to practice. 
Uh, if you don't go to hearings, if you don't work besides the lawyer that is uh, going to the to the hearings, you'll never lose the fear to be in front of a judge. So it's very useful to uh, to go uh, to the to the hearings to talk with the client to know your case and and to be slowly be more confident about what you say and what you do and how you say it because uh, i see a lot uh, a lot of this uh, in the in the hearings when you uh, are like nervous and that uh, you, you can uh, uh, see that in the voice of the people so if you don't practice you never will learn so you have to give it a try that's the first advice patricia one thing we like to do in, on the podcast is ask our guests for, for recommendations. And this way, we not only benefit from the, the knowledge and stories that you share with us here, but also give uh, our listeners and, and, and ourselves um, more opportunities to, to benefit from the sources that are helping you gain a better understanding of the world. So with that in mind, I'd, I'd like to to ask you if you could recommend either a book or a movie or um, magazine article, Netflix series, whatever it is that you think would be of interest to our audience. Oh, yes. In fact, I'm reading a, a book that I love. It's called Making Your Case by Antonin Scalia. He was a justice from the Supreme Court uh, of the United States. And I love this book because it's it has a point of view very practical and the author gives very good advice on how to convince with your argument and it's very uh, clear, it's very uh, practice, it's very easy to read. It's an amazing book. I, I recommend to all uh, lawyers, not only criminal lawyers, if you are a late lawyer or, or any area that you practice, this is very good for you. And it's amazing how uh, in this book, uh, the author approach uh, some things that you can um, think as obvious, but they are not obvious. One example is, and I, I always uh, laugh when I read that page, because uh, the author said, you must know your case. If, if, you, if you analyze this idea, you say, which lawyer do not uh, know his case but it's amazing how many times uh, you you are in a hearing and a judge asks for something to the to the lawyers to the principal lawyer that are in, in talking in the hearing and they do not know by sure the number of the page uh, where is the uh, the information that the judge is solicitation solicitating and it's almost embarrassing to to presence that. So that that kinds of advice is very useful and remind you how to uh, function in in the hearings with uh, with uh, agility and analytic skills. It's a very good book. Definitely something that um, I, I'll look forward to picking up. I mean, speaking of of Scalia, I, I think he certainly has this reputation um, as being, I think he's, most people would, the first thing they think about when they, when they hear of Scalia are, are, are his politics, but actually when you, when you read his, his decisions, right. And there's 
um, and not only his his decisions, but some of, of his his work, his academic work. Um, there, there's definitely a, a, a lot more. One thing that I find interesting about Justice Scalia is how, in in a way, he admired some of the aspects of the of the civil systems. I think in many ways he thought our system should adopt some of the uh, concern with um, sticking close to the statutory language, et cetera. And, and I think, in fact, he had uh, a law review article or, or, or something he wrote where he, I, I think that was, that was part of the title, you know, some um, um, involving the, you know, a move towards a legal uh, civil law system or something like that. Um, but um, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, Jonathan, what, what about you? What, what do you have for us? Well, since we've been focusing on Mexico lately, I found a white paper done by the Council on Foreign Relations back in October 2014. It's called North America, Time for a New Focus. It's a 150-page white paper, but it focuses on North America as a coherent whole. We're talking about Canada, U.S., and Mexico. And this was, of course, four years ago before the USMCA was signed. That was about 18 months ago. So it focuses on North American energy and interdependence, on our economic competitiveness, our security, on our community, really all aspects of our uh, our joint relationship. So I know this was done under the prior administration, but at the same time, with the way that China has come into disfavor rapidly in the past couple of years, I think that we're seeing the strategy bear out, that if anything, the U.S. is pulling closer to home, but we're not excluding Canada, we're not excluding Mexico. And certainly there are different ways about how we think we should engage with our neighbors. But I think that the idea that we're going to be a U.S. that's focused on the U.S. and our immediate neighbors, uh, you know, all of us together first, certainly rings throughout all of this. Fred, what do you have for us? Well, first of all, um, on the subject of Mexico, this is not so much a specific recommendation as, as, as more of a, of a general exhortation. Um, for for listeners to to read up a little bit about the U.S. Mexico Canada trade agreement, the USMCA. Um, I've actually, because of the work I do with with customs matters, I've uh, participated in a few webinars um, and had the opportunity to learn about the the different changes uh, at conferences, etc. Et um, but but I think it's the the reason I make this uh, suggestion is there's a a feeling out there that, that that there haven't been that many substantive changes to the old NAFTA, and in, in a way that's true. I mean, I think in, in general terms, the the spirit of the of, of, of NAFTA remains remains there. But but there are um, uh, important changes, and even if you're not a trade practitioner, even if you're not that interested in the in the nuts and bolts, what what is interesting is to see this as an example of how uh, priorities change over time and, 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 and evol- the evolution in, in the thinking. So you have an original agreement from the 1990s um, and this uh, newer version uh, accounts for much of what has happened since. So, so it's uh, as, a, as a historical matter, if you, if you enjoyed the study of history, it's, it's a great example of, of legal evolution. Uh, in terms of actual recommendations, so this is a, an article from the Military Times, and um, it's got a great title and also a very descriptive one, Tinder Sailor Hooker Pimp, 
the U.S. Navy's sex trafficking scandal in Bahrain. So great use of the uh, John le Carré novel title there um, or adaptation of it. But this was actually um, a fascinating article. Um, yeah, as, as the title suggests, it, it does talk about um, pretty, pretty salacious uh, uh, events in in Bahrain, where the where the U.S. Navy has a, a very important base, but I thought the article really touched on a lot of different things, uh, and it's a very international cast. You know, he it involves um, American sailors and and law enforcement, um, the, the hosts in Bahrain, um, the the uh, the women involved in this were from the Philippines, from Thailand. Um, so all in all, a very interesting story. And frankly, it opened up, you know, it opened my eyes to uh, the reality in Bahrain. I, I, I would have thought it would, you know, I, I didn't. Uh, it's, it's certainly given me a new perspective on what what modern day Bahrain uh, looks like. Um, it, but it's a fascinating article. Ultimately, the the, the, the story is a sad one. But there's certainly a lot of a lot of color to it and, and a lot of interesting. I learned a lot. Let's put it that way. So, again, Tinder, Sailor, Hooker, Pimp, the U.S. Navy's sex trafficking scandal in Bahrain. You can find it online. It was published on June 16th of this year. And the author is um, I'm going to butcher this. Uh, Jeff, tell you what. Um, <laughs> I'm not even going to attempt this. Uh, I'm assuming it's a Polish or, or Eastern European surname, but um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, it's it's better for everyone if I if I don't uh, take a stab at it. Patricia, thank you for being with us today. We learned so much from you and appreciate your firsthand account of your experiences. We hope that we can catch up again with you for a future episode, and uh, then you can catch us up on any recent developments since then. Thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed a lot this uh, conversation with you and I'd be glad to talk again anytime you like. Thank you again. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.